state fragility and stabilization programs. First and foremost, we've learned that Unfortunately, more resources doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes when we're thinking about how to strengthen states. Climate security risks. I talked to senior defence people in the last couple of months and they are actively discouraged from even using the term climate change. Rethinking Australia's business and trade. They were designed for a different, less challenging and slower paced era. We can't change the environment that we're in, but we have to change the way in which we engage with it. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Stabilising fragile states has been a long-term focus of US foreign policy, and this also became a focus of the US and its allies in their operations in Afghanistan. What lessons can be learned from Afghanistan, and how can the United States work with allies and like-minded countries to promote democracy globally. Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Francis Brown from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace to answer some of these questions. Francis, thanks so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure, it's great to be with you. So today we're going to talk about the issue of state fragility and of course Afghanistan has been very much in the news over the last month and again it's a source of great angst about that issue of how do you strengthen states that are very fragile? How do you stop them from being problematic in the global system? Is it even possible after the failed, or what some say at least, is the failed experiment of Afghanistan? Can we learn any lessons from Afghanistan about strengthening state stability? Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope we will be learning many lessons from the Afghanistan effort, both those of us here in the United States and then many of our partners like Australia. I think we have many lessons to learn. I would say First and foremost, we've learned that, unfortunately, more resources doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes when we're thinking about how to strengthen states. I'd also say we have been talking for years in the international policy community about the need to, quote, think and work politically in fragile states, that tackling issues of instability is fundamentally about thinking about problems of governance in fragile states and that governance and politics are central to everything. So we've been talking about that for ages, but we still really have yet to put into practice how we actually operationalize that insight. And I think Afghanistan and what we've seen in the last six weeks in Afghanistan really illustrates that because the Taliban victory, to my mind, was as much a psychological victory and a political victory as it was really a military conquest. If you look at the way they were able to conquer large parts of Afghanistan and finally Kabul, it wasn't necessarily because of their military prowess. In many cases, they were able to take territory without firing a shot. They just negotiated with local leaders who changed sides. And many members of the Afghan National Security and Defense Forces decided it wasn't worth fighting for their central governments. They hadn't been paid in weeks in many cases. They were disillusioned with the government in Kabul, which was viewed as predatory and corrupt and exclusionary, and ultimately that government fled. So I think my big takeaway from the Afghanistan effort is that when we think about strengthening fragile states, security assistance and training doesn't go that far if we don't have the politics right and if we don't have the host government relationship right. So I hope that's what we take from it going forward. So in other words, it's the politics, stupid. We need to get a lot better at that. (laughs) Always, yes, eternally. 
So given that particular insight, again, there's a lot of talk out there in the press about, you know, what does this mean for US power? You know, is this the end of US power in the world? These are very dramatic kinds of, of thinking about the outcome of Afghanistan. But how should the US project its presence in the world, given what you're saying about the primacy of politics? How should the U.S. deploy itself to help stabilize the system of states out there? So I think the U.S. probably needs to get much more serious about leading through diplomacy and leading through political alliances. And this is something that our still pretty new administration here in Washington has been talking about a lot, that it's much more important to have the power of our example than it is the example of our power. So I think that's an insight they've had. It's one I happen to agree with. But then actually making that real, I think, is something we're still working on. We have seen the new administration really emphasize alliances, multilateral fora. It's worked very closely with Australia in a number of settings, and I think will continue to. So I think that's the way we need to go about this in general going forward. And then particularly and especially in fragile states where the, you know, the U.S. isn't always the best situated to actually partner with these states. So I think the partnership angle is more important than ever. What is the latest on the implementation of the Global Fragility Act and the associated strategy? So very timely question. It sounds like you have been well-versed in it, but just for any listeners who aren't familiar with the Global Fragility Act, this is a law that was passed here in the United States at the end of December 2019, and it really prioritizes U.S. engagement to stabilize fragile states. It calls on the United States government to fund, develop, and test new ways of reducing and even preventing violent conflict by addressing political, economic, and social grievances. And it calls for the U.S. government to do this in a way that is coordinated between our different departments of government. So our Defense Department, our State Department, our USAID, the Agency for International Development. And it will probably come as no surprise even to listeners in Australia, that sometimes those parts of the U.S. government don't always work effectively together, despite our best efforts. So the Global Fragility Act, the GFA, is really trying to lay out a no more business as usual when it comes to fragile states. How can we learn some of these lessons, including the ones that, that you and I just talked about? So status of where it is, it has been slow getting off the ground. So it was passed in December 2019. As I mentioned, that was the final year of the Trump administration. The Trump administration did try to move it forward, but it didn't get much traction. And it's safe to say not that much happened. They did have a global fragility strategy released that didn't really fit all the requirements of the law. So the Biden administration has now come in. They are getting staffed up, particularly with senior level officials. Uh, they haven't been fully staffed up as of yet. And they're trying to move forward on the Global Fragility Act implementation. The first big hurdle is selecting what countries or regions the GFA will actually be implemented in. So you can say, great, you've got a strategy for Global Fragility Act, but where the rubber meets the road is actually where the U.S. focuses on particular countries. So right now there has been, I think it's safe to say, an almost interminable process going on to select countries of focus or regions of the world of focus. To, from what I've heard, I don't think those have been finalized. So we're looking forward to that. And then the last thing, just to stay on the, the Global Fragility Act and strategy that might be of interest to our listeners today, is that it authorizes a couple of different pots of money. One that it talks about or it calls for is a multi-donor Global Fragility Fund, which would ideally allow the U.S. to cooperate with other actors, including other governments like Australia, 
towards fragile states. So that is still is yet to be kind of moved forward. But I think that's an interesting space to watch going forward. Is it a problem that the Global Fragility Act doesn't mention the climate crisis, at least in the documents that I've seen? Is that something that the Biden administration will, will include? So it's a problem that it's not mentioned, but I don't think it's an insurmountable one. The Global Fragility Act was passed during the Trump administration. The Trump administration did not prioritize climate as a policy issue. The Biden administration is taking a very different approach. They have certainly gotten very serious on the climate front. So I think it's very safe to say that issues of climate will be integrated into implementation of the act going forward. So I'm not too concerned that we're not going to see that going forward. But how does the issue of fragile states relate to the major Biden foreign policy agenda of democracy promotion in this case? So to my mind, the challenges of stabilizing fragile states and the challenge of pushing back against rising authoritarianism or shoring up global democracy, these two challenges are really interlinked. Because when you think about places in which authoritarianism is on the rise or democracy is on the decline, these are often fragile states. These are often states that either are susceptible to violence or are already in conflict. So I think that the Biden administration can't really tackle one without tackling the other. That said, the way the U.S. government approaches those two buckets of issues, we really approach them kind of in parallel and separately. And I think the U.S. government isn't alone here. I think a lot of our other partner governments do this as well, that they sort of have the people who work on democracy in one camp and the people who work on conflicts and deploy to war zones in another. And it's almost like we have this assumption that a country is kind of in the conflict basket and then it suddenly sort of it improves and it transitions to being in the democracy basket. And that's not really how the world works. So I think it is a problem, a longstanding problem that the U.S. government has had sort of two communities of interest working on these topics. And as a consequence, when the Biden team has been rolling out its initiatives, it's sort of rolling out the democracy issues separately from the fragile states issue. I do hope that they can bring these two lines of effort together. You know, the Global Fragility Act has a lot of opportunities where we can also be thinking about democracy in some of these countries. The flip side, the Biden administration has announced it's going to host a global democracy summit. So we can talk more about that in a minute if you'd like. But there's certainly ways to integrate issues of fragile states into the global democracy summit. So I think it can be done. But as of now, this will not come as a shock to you. Bureaucratics often drive policy. <laughs> and right now we are seeing these policy efforts sort of unfold distinct from one another. I think silos are a problem in bureaucracies everywhere. They're becoming very difficult to maintain given the structural challenges that we face globally. So just on Biden's Democracy Summit, we haven't heard a lot about this in Australia. How is it shaping up? How's the agenda going? Again, I had a look at the State Department website. They've got themes, but not a lot of detail yet. Yes, this is a much anticipated summit and a very important question you're asking. So to back up slightly for our listeners, the Summit for Democracy came from actually a pledge that President Biden, when he was just candidate Biden made early last year, early 2020, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs magazine that said, if I'm elected, I'm going to do many things on the foreign policy front. And one of them is to host a summit for democracies, bringing together the world's democracies. 
So this was a campaign pledge. And once he got elected, as with many campaign pledges, his team was charged with making this real. And that's what they've been doing. I think it's safe to say there's a lot of excitement about this because it would be a really important signal to send to the world that the United States is back on the side of advocating loudly for democracy and is bringing together democracies to sort of take on challenges. All that said, it is also an incredibly hard lift (laughs) to pull off a summit for democracies, especially in the middle of a pandemic. You might know I served in the White House staff on the National Security Council staff a few years ago. And so I know very acutely (laughs) the lift that my colleagues still in government are working on to pull this kind of event off. So I think the first few months of the administration, when they've also been tasked with getting the pandemic under control, getting the economic crisis under control, refocusing on the climate crisis, that is what they've been grappling with. Right now, what we know about the summit is that it will happen in December of this year. President Biden just announced that a couple weeks ago. It's going to be virtual. And the current thinking is actually what will happen in December is the first of two summits and that there will be a subsequent summit a year from then, which will hopefully be in person. Hopefully the pandemic will be more under control. So in December, virtual summit, but we haven't yet seen the invite list. We don't know which countries will be invited. And we haven't seen too much more of the agenda other than knowing that it hews to these three broad themes, which are anti-corruption, human rights, and countering authoritarianism. Those three themes are extremely broad. And so as you think about how do you make a meaningful summit agenda from that, I think there's still a lot of latitude. The other thing that is ongoing that I think we're going to hear more about in the coming months is that the Biden administration is really clear they don't want countries to just attend as a freebie. They want any country who attends, including the United States, to make commitments to improve their own democracy and to champion democracy around the world. So it's kind of like the idea of a ticket for admission. So I think they're working, I believe, on sort of a country by country basis to figure out what those commitments up front can be. So the idea is that this summit is hoped to not be just a talk shop, but instead actually drive real progress. All that said, that is exceedingly hard to craft those commitments and then follow up on them. So I think there's a lot of work still to be done. So stay tuned, but mark your calendar uh, for December of this year for round number one. And I truly hope Australia is hearing more through official channels or will soon. Thanks, Francis. Look, we might have to, unfortunately, wrap it up there. There's a lot more to talk about in terms of democracy and democracy promotion in the global system at the moment. And hopefully one day we can have you back to dig a little bit further into those issues. But for now, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's been a real delight to be with you and look forward to continuing the conversation. A new report from the Australian Security Leaders Climate Group offers a whole-of-nation climate security risk assessment Dr. Robert Glasser speaks to Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn, retired, who co-authored this report. They discuss Australia's shortcomings in responding to climate security risks and what the government needs to do to prepare for the security implications of devastating climate impacts, both in Australia and in our new region. Well, John, it's great to have you on the ASPE podcast to talk about this really important report missing in action which you describe as an initial proposal to the Australian government. But maybe before asking you about the report, 
Can you tell us a bit for our listeners who may not be aware what the Australian Security Leaders Climate Group is? Yes, yeah, certainly, Robert. Look, what we wanted to do is have a discussion with the Australian people about climate change, but in context, not just about the science or about that particular issue, but our resilience as a nation. And because we brought together people with experience in defence and national security areas, we're using the example of how militaries and security people think about these issues. Militaries, for example, can look at a range of scenarios, they test our ideas out, they have a preparedness system. They prepare for a range of threats and risks and they train for it. And so what we're trying to do is get that thinking into the discussion about climate, saying we can't just afford to wait until all the impacts continue to build. We need to prepare for what's coming because climate science clearly tells us the current climate impacts are going to get worse. The Royal Commission said that last year when it did its, its report. So why aren't we preparing for it? So we wanted to have that discussion with people with that background to try and have a slightly different focus. Yeah, and the report, I guess, is one way of triggering that discussion. But if defence personnel, whose job it is to think about risks, even unlikely risks, let alone ones that are like climate and security, a likely risk, are trained to look at these things, why hasn't it featured more prominently to date in the discussion? Surely someone in defence is looking at that. Uh, politics. I talked to senior defence people in the last couple of months and they are actively discouraged from even using the term climate change. So in this country, we have climate change as a political issue. It's used as a football between the major parties. They're focused on the next election. They're not focused on the really important issues for the future of Australia because it's beyond the election cycle. Essentially, last week, a group of us had a conversation with our Swedish colleagues, again, a similar organisation to ours, and they said in Sweden, when you listen to the two major parties speak about this, you actually can't get a sense when they're talking about climate that they have differing views or they fully agree on the situation. You may see a difference in the approach of how they want to deal with it, but there's no argument about the reality. In this country, we have parts of the media and certainly parts of our political system in denial. And unfortunately, that then limits what people in defence can say and do. And that's a very sad situation. So we've decided to speak out. I don't know if you saw the Pew Charitable Trust climate survey. It was just released yesterday, actually. Of all the countries in the world surveyed, there is no country with a wider gap between conservatives and liberals, in quotes, on the issue of is the government responding adequately to this threat than in Australia. Wider split, more polarization on this than in the US. It's really quite remarkable. It's pretty sad because you go back to, say, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was a lot of bipartisan agreement on critical things that need to be done, particularly with our economy. And so when you look at the Hawke-Keating and Howard governments, so both sides of politics, they were able to achieve a bipartisan agreement on how we deal with our economic strength, our economic resilience. And thankfully, they did because that got us through the first GFC. But something's happened in this last 20 years where politics has become short-sighted in reaction. And that is not just about climate, it's about a whole range of areas where our resilience as a nation is heading downhill at the worst possible time. And hence the missing in action report responding to climate security risks initial proposal to the Australian government. Can you talk us through some of the main recommendations? We obviously can't have time to go through all of them, but maybe the ones you would focus on as Look, the top yeah. priorities. 
where there's clearly no bipartisan or publicly accepted statement of what the situation is and the risk, that's the most important thing to get done. And so we're calling for an urgent climate and security risk assessment. It really has to be independently chaired. It can't be from either party by itself. And basically we have to do what we're seeing the US doing, which is taking climate crisis as a fundamental existential challenge we have to address. So first off, let's do that proper climate and security risk because you know, we've had Senate inquiries in the past, the government's ignored the recommendations. We're just not looking at the problem. Then within government, if we do that risk, you have to have assigned responsibilities and leadership to look at the climate threat, to do the threat assessments, and to come up with a plan of what we're going to do. Because you can't just address climate by itself. It's not a standalone thing. You can't address it separate from our economy or our energy systems or a lot of our infrastructure in this country has to be addressed together. The starting point is having an honest discussion about what the problem is and the need to fix it, and we don't have that. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes a lot of people make on this issue is to assume that climate is either an environment problem or a problem of natural disasters, maybe intensifying disasters. But as you pointed out, John, this is a global systemic change. It's those two things for sure, but it's also the economy, it's also defense and security, it's a whole range of issues, as I know you highlight in this report as well. And when we talk about security, a lot of people, and particularly the current government, devolves immediately to military and terrorism. And you can see this whole beat up or issue going on right now in the lead up to the election about national security and about the threat from China. What we're talking about in security is the well-being of not only our nation, but the rest of the world. And that's not about the military. There are military impacts out of this, but that leadership has to come from the whole nation. Security is a national security and resilience issue. So what do you, you know, the typical, the community here talks about threats to Australia, China features prominently. What's the argument for saying China isn't the greater threat in this case? How would you condense that argument? China and the wider area problems that we're going to face are a national security, a global security risk that needs to be addressed. But let's be honest about it, that best wall we'll ever do is be an adjunct to a US force addressing that. You can't control or drive it, but we have no choice but to work with our alliance and do what little we can. And we do a lot in that area. We're spending over $40 billion a year for a range of risks, some of which are fairly low likelihood, but the consequence is so large you have to do it. If you look at the other part of it, and we can see these impacts already in Australia with the Black Summer fires, and you look around the world where the climate impacts are going, that's something we can do something a lot more about. We need to do it as a part of a global community because in reality, the amount of emissions that we do produce are small on a global scale, but per capita they're high. But that's something we have to take an action on. We can do. We can prepare to deal with the climate change impacts as fires and floods and weather events and inundation get far worse, that's something we have to act on. And we've got the capability of doing a lot about it. In terms of the China piece, yes, we have to deal with it. A little less pre-election rhetoric would be helpful because it's drowning out the discussion of all these other issues. But we can't just say we deal with a military or regional security threat. We've got to deal with the wider range of problems we face. Yeah, and of course, China will be deeply affected by climate risk, and it is already one of the top few countries in the world exposed to the most climate hazards. Yeah. I know this is also described as a threat multiplier at times, climate change, and it certainly will 
I assume do those things. Oh, it will be. And as we've read in the science and discussions about, you know, the change to fisheries of Indonesia, inundation, mass population movements, our idea of having a couple of Navy ships on the north of Australia to stop illegal refugees is just becomes farcical. You look at the problems they're facing in Europe with mass migration there, it makes our challenge look quite small. Add climate impacts on top of that, it's going to be way beyond something that we can handle. But there's a more immediate threat to us is we should learn the lessons from the Black Summer. We should learn what's happening around the world and take on board the recommendations of the Royal Commission and get on with that part of it at least. So even if we do nothing about emissions, we know that the impacts on our society, on Australia, are going to get worse and quite rapidly, and they might go exponential. Let's fix that. But at the same time, understand that we've got to start doing stuff about emissions far more seriously because it'll only get worse in the next couple of decades. So we've got two problems here. I, I liken this to, to my military background, flying fighter aircraft. When that firelight comes up in the cockpit, we spend a lot of time training and analysing this. So it's not, oh, there's a surprise. Is it for real? Should we have an argument of the firelights, you know, left side or right side of politics? Your firelight comes on. First thing you do is treat it seriously. Second, you keep flying the aeroplane because you don't want to fly on the ground. The next thing you do is stop pouring fuel in the fire. You shut the engine down. And if that doesn't work and it's still on fire, you eject. Now, let's talk about our society as a whole. The warning light's on, but it's become a political issue, so we ignore it. What we're not doing is keep flying the aeroplane, which is managing our society as best as we can because we're going to face more and more problems, regardless of emissions. We keep pouring more fuel on the fire, which is not addressing the emissions problems. But unlike a fighter pilot, you can't eject from Australia unless you're a very rich billionaire in America who's got these fantasies of leaving the planet. Well, we can't do that. And also, we can't quarantine ourselves, which appears to be the current government approach doing things that shut the borders. We can't do that with climate change. We have to deal with this. We don't have an ejection seat. We're going to keep living in Australia. Let's get serious about it. One of the reasons I like this report is I think there's a tendency in Australia for us to assume that you know, we have climate change issues here, Black Summer, and then there are climate problems happening outside of Australia. But they're a problem, but they're not a problem for Australia. And I think this report, and we're trying to emphasize this message as well at ASPE, highlights that actually those problems, when you have a country like Indonesia, 275 million people, a few hundred kilometers from Australia, that is hugely exposed to climate risk, this will be a problem for us. Absolutely. There through Papua New Guinea, through to the Pacific Islands, we're all living on the same planet, although at times you sort of wonder that. But we actually need to work together to try and solve the problem together. Because, look, think about what the pandemic shows. Our vulnerability to fragile supply chains has stunned a lot of people. And so what we've seen is a pandemic and a virus impact not only production in countries, but the whole distribution chain in terms of shipping and other areas. And we still have problems with that. If climate change goes where it's going into what we accept, what the science tells us, forget about ordering four months ahead for your Christmas present to come on a ship. The supply chains will be fundamentally impacted, as will production in a lot of countries. On top of that, you'll have mass migration and a whole bunch of other crises going on. The economic damage would be amazing. A way of life would be affected. So imagine the problems we saw with supply chains last year and this year, much worse. That's where we're headed. And because we have been blind to our overseas import dependence, you know, more than 90% of our fuels imported, more than 90% of our medicines, just about everything else you buy comes on a ship from somewhere that we don't control. 
we are walking backwards and ignoring the problem and failing to learn not only from the black summer bushfires, but the crises that we've seen come out of this pandemic. Yeah, if you overlay climate and security risk on and explore our vulnerability, there are huge gaps. The one you just pointed out, how many Australian flagged container ships are there? Is zero. There zero. Yeah, that's a bit that's yeah. clearly a risk. So the first thing that we're saying in this report is let's do this proper risk assessment. And, and that matches up with the other role I have, which is chair of the AAR Australia. And, and what we've been doing is a national resilience project. And the two are very closely linked. So with our project, National Resilience, we're using the ASLTG report as the climate environment piece. When you look at the bigger picture of our resilience, we think there are three things that are really important. One is shared awareness and the ability to come up with a shared goal of what we want to do as a nation. And really what that first recommendation from the climate group is, hey, let's get proper shared awareness with this understanding of what the real risk is and gets accepted. The second thing is if you've got that understanding, you can't fix anything as an individual or one state. This federation problem we see right now where everyone's state themselves is mad. You have to work as a team. And in the case of climate change, it's not just Australia as a team, it's Australia with the region and the rest of the world. So if you have that shared awareness and you can work as a team, there's a third thing that will allow you to be resilient, and that's preparing for it, or in the military terms, preparedness, and when something starts to get really bad, you have to be able to mobilise your society. Now, that's what militaries are about, preparedness and mobilisation. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us we didn't prepare and we can't mobilise. The team fell apart very quickly. And we've now got this misinformation about viruses and medicines and all the rest as a result of both social media, some parts of the right-wing media, and even in politics, Members of the government are spreading misinformation. That's happened purely on the pandemic. Now let's look if we overlay these other risks and climate to use the existential one. We can't afford to go about this way of life in the future. We've got to face reality. Well, I know after the bushfires in January of last year, Scott Morrison for the first time described the climate impacts as a climate security issue, as a national security issue. So let's hope that that awareness will lead to some of those recommendations, ideally all of them being accepted in your report, John. And thanks very much for your unflappable efforts to highlight the risks of climate, climate insecurity for Australia. It's really, really important contribution. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for the opportunity. How have COVID-19, natural disasters and coercion affected Australia's business and trade positioning? Michael Shoebridge and Jill Savage explore this in their ASPE report, New Beginnings, Rethinking Business and Trade in an Era of Strategic Clarity and Rolling Disruption. They argue that this period of disruption provides opportunities to Australia to invest in what we're good at and what we need. Well, Jill, it's lovely to have a chance to talk with you about a big new report that John Coyne, you and I have written called New Beginnings, Rethinking business and trade in an era of strategic clarity, but rolling disruption. Why do you think this report matters? Well, I think the report's important because it looks at the relationship between our business and trade positioning in the context of the impacts of COVID, the natural disasters that we've experienced in recent years, and also coercive trading partners. It looks at where we are today, how we got here, 
and also highlight some opportunities that are available to us as a way of leveraging trade to enhance resilience and safeguard our sovereignty. Mm. I'm hoping you're right, because I think connecting those three things, COVID, a coercive China, and the experience we had before the pandemic with that national bushfire disaster is really important because otherwise people can think about these things as three separate buckets of issues. You know, we had those horrible fires, then we had this nasty pandemic, and gosh, China chose that moment to coerce us through trade. And making sense of these themes together, I think, helps people to be a bit more clear-minded about it, but also some of the themes that come out of it, some of the key messages, I think, really are relevant, not just to people in government, but people in business and people in our university and research sector as well. What are the big key messages you think that come out of the report? Well, I think the first one is, and you touched on this, that we've treated big challenges in isolation of other things that are happening. So even with, I think, the natural disasters and particularly the bushfires, it was a little bit like we're doing, you know, recovery of bushfires. And then COVID came along and we're doing recovery around COVID when these things are very strongly linked in terms of economic security as well as social cohesion and well-being of the community. So I think that's the big change. It's about bringing complex things together and deliberately engaging with them rather than trying to oversimplify, trying to look at things in isolation. And I think our policies, our procedures and even our mindsets around some of these things You know, we make a point in the report about they were designed for a different, less challenging and slower paced era. We can't change the environment that we're in, but we have to change the way in which we engage with it. Yes. One of the things that's important in the report to me is that what you do on one of these challenges can help or hinder you with what you do on another one, but also that it really does connect security technology and economics. And we can see that with the supply chain disruption that's come from the pandemic, but also the very similar supply chain disruption that's coming from a coercive China. And that's all leading policymakers, whether you're in business or government, to revalue resilience and move away from short-term thinking like just-in-time supply chains. It doesn't matter where I get this supply or input from as long as it's cheap and I don't have to hold many inventory stocks. Now we're realising that prosperity, security and well-being are all connected and resilience is a positive value, not some nasty overhead that's inflicted upon you. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we've got this great opportunity to enter into a new era of nation building where we focus on the things that we value. We focus on the kind of future that we want for Australia. And that does require us to rethink business and trade and all of those connecting pieces that you've just been talking about, Michael. I'm really hoping that the report is read for what it is. It's a pretty positive set of messages about how Australia and Australians find ourselves in 2021. And we've really withstood the impact of this nasty global pandemic extraordinarily well. 
we've probably demonstrated a whole lot more societal cohesion than many of us would have expected. And at the same time as that, we've stood up to the other nasty phenomenon of coercive trade practices out of Beijing, right in the middle of a global pandemic. So we're in really good shape now. I hope that's something that readers take out of it. And the opportunities that the report goes into around things like the value that comes from data and technology, you know, digitization, areas like biotechnology, renewable energy, clean steel and agritech are all foundations for Australia's future prosperity and done well, they help our security at the same time. So who do you think should read the report, Jill? Well, I think obviously policymakers are one group of people, but investors, obviously business people, educators, anyone really who has a voice and who can contribute to a national conversation on this. Because I guess one of the things that we are highlighting is that Australia does have a lot of opportunities and we have done reasonably well through very difficult times it would be an absolute wasted opportunity for Australia not to change a lot of fundamental things. It would be easy for us to be thinking, well, we did okay and we got through and that's enough. Increasingly, it won't be enough into the future. It probably isn't Mm. enough now. And so I think that national conversation and, you know, really hearing from a whole range of different sectors and a whole range of different voices to say we want something different. And I think if we went and asked some young people in Australia what they thought of today and the kind of future they wanted, you know, they'd be putting a lot of pressure on some of us who are a little bit older to say, well, you've got to do this. If not for anyone, do it for us. Yeah, well, that's interesting too because I think some of these areas where the report really points to opportunities like the digital world, data and technology, or biotechnology. These are things that that younger audience and younger Australians probably understand far better than a whole bunch of the decision makers that are currently in positions of power. And so this report, by pulling out those areas of opportunity for Australia, I think does really recognise the contribution and thinking of younger Australians and Australians outside the traditional focuses of a government when it thinks about national security. But another thing I think is important for the readership of this is the theme through it that the future prosperity, well-being and security of Australia is not going to come just out of smart government policymakers and regulators and practitioners. It's got to be a new kind of partnership with the corporate world and with our research sector. Because a lot of these new directions are coming out of the corporate and research parts of Australia, not being thought about and and moved along in government. And that's a different kind of conversation. Do you think it's a challenge in the report to corporate Australia and also to our research sector to, to try and shift government from the arm's length contracting probity mindset to being much closer partners moving at speed to take up some of these opportunities in the report. Yeah, I do. And I think there are a couple of points that you raise there. One is that last one around moving at speed. The other is about different arrangements and different relationships. And those things make it quite complex, you know, not at all simple. 
And I think government really needs to and the bureaucracy needs to be able to pursue those sorts of multi-party, fast-moving opportunities in a very different way to take advantage of the the sorts of things that we've been talking about here. Yes, yeah, so, well, maybe it'll help to give an example, but agritech seems to be one to me. You know, you think about what the report says about the contribution agriculture makes to Australia's economy and how comfortable we've all got with that idea. And then you think about the impact of climate change on food production, not just in Australia, but in our near region, the Pacific and Southeast Asia. If we're not investing in agritech and biotechnology around plants and animals, as well as human health, we won't be helping create the climate change resistant crops and animals that will provide food security for us and for our region in the world we know we're going into. If we do take that opportunity and say, this brings our best scientific and research minds together with an enduring economic advantage we have in agriculture, and it helps us engage with our region, that's a hugely positive opportunity that turns climate change and our region into a real defining part of our future prosperity. So that's the kind of imagination that the report calls for and sketches out. When you think about a particular part of it that you're excited about, what would a part of the report be for you? I think for me, it may not be too exciting, but one of the aspects that we cover is, and we call it the cult of the MBA. And I think what we've done there is highlight a whole lot of institutionalised challenges for Australia because all of those, and you talked about decision makers earlier, Michael, all of those decision makers in some way would have been touched by that cult of the MBA. That doesn't serve us well today. And so there's this huge challenge to turn that around and to engage with different ways of thinking. And I think entrepreneurs and investors are those that can help us with that. Yes, yeah. Well, the report does really challenge a whole bunch of big assumptions that people schooled in different business degrees would probably still hold now, as well as what some of our most senior public servants and political figures from the past are still talking about. It challenges globalisation and says that COVID and a coercive China have broken globalisation. We now still want to live in an international world, but it's a more fragmented, disrupted international world rather than just a big global system. Uh, so it breaks into some of the big assumptions that that MBA mindset has. And it's got a real theme that returning to the way things were as recently as 2018 is just not a viable future for us. We need to look at Australia's future well-being, security and prosperity with some clear eyes about what changes have happened and the opportunities that come out of that for Australia. So I'm hoping the report does that. And Jill, maybe uh, some final thoughts from you and then we'll let people read the report rather than listen to us. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to imagine the future that we want and we need to go after it. We really need to be thinking quite differently about this and not drift along as we have up until this point. And I think we have been very lucky, but we could be luckier. And I think that's the key message for me. Mm, Maybe luck comes with a bit of imagination and energy. 
Yeah. Well, look, thanks very much, Jill. It's been great talking with you and thank you for your incredible contribution to this work. And likewise, Michael. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Anastasia Capetis, National Security Editor of The Strategists, and Dr. Francis Brown, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of Carnegie's Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre, and Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn, former Deputy Chief of the Royal Australian Air Force and Executive Member of the Australian Security Leaders Climate Group, and Jill Savage, Senior Fellow with ASPE's Northern Australia Strategic Policy Centre, and Michael Shoebridge, Director of ASPE's Defence, Strategy and National Security Program. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.